0: Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Work & Co. is looking for a senior QA analyst in Brooklyn, New York. The University of Delaware is looking for an assistant professor for their art and design department in Newark, Delaware. The University of Texas at Austin is looking for an assistant professor of practice in integrated design for their College of Fine Arts in Austin, Texas. And Bandcamp is looking for a user experience designer. This is a remote position. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. RevisionPath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Teresa Moses, Creative Director at Blackbird Revolt, and an educator and design researcher at the University of Minnesota in Duluth, Minnesota. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Teresa Moses. Um, I also go by Terry, You she, her pronouns. And I am a designer, I'm an educator, and an organizer. I'm an assistant professor um, of graphic design at the University of Minnesota, as well as the director of design justice for the College of Design. And then I own a studio called Blackbird Revolt, in which, you know, I work on a lot of creative projects for um, justice oriented, you know, anti-racist projects. And I also am heavily involved in community work. So,
0: yeah. Wow. So like with with all of that going on, I have to imagine you've had probably quite a year so far. Like how have things been going?
1: I would say the most interesting thing is starting My position at the Twin Cities campus because I was at the Duluth campus um, teaching. And so, starting last year in the middle of a pandemic, moving and all of that has been a little weird. And it's like you meet your colleagues online and then they see you in person and they have masks on and they all know each other. And I don't know them, but they know who I am because I'm like the only Black person. So mm-hmm. they like come up and talk to me and I'm just like, uh, you know, and not really knowing who they are. So, <laughs> so that's like the really interesting part. I, I kind of get nervous around, it. maybe it's like some social anxiety stuff, but so that's been the really interesting part. But I would say the year overall has been okay, considering like the world in which we live in. I think there was definitely a lot of, I guess, turmoil in the city. You know, we're in many, I'm in Minneapolis here, so mm-hmm. Dante Wright is another Black man shot by the cops in Brooklyn Center. And so around April, April, May, June, we were just out there doing what we could um, to protest that injustice. So it's been eventful. And that's like, to say the least. And then on top of that, working on my PhD <laughs> right now. So
0: I yeah, I didn't consider that. Yeah, you're in Minneapolis. That's really kind of the epicenter, certainly, of everything that has went on. Regarding George Floyd and yep. the protest and everything like that. Like, how's the city now? Like, as we're, I mean, we're recording this right now, kind of at the beginning of October 2021, like, how's the city now?
1: I don't even want to say like the city is the same. You know, there's definitely not the heightened presence of like National Guard and police everywhere. However, the city is still hurting. And, you know, we still haven't got the demands for justice that we wanted with George Floyd. And so, I mean, I would say the city is still we're waiting for justice. I think we're just kind of there. And then, like, I think also one of the things I think about is kind of the performative allyship that showed up last year and Mm. how it's so much different now. Like, they're just... You know, I own my studio and it was like, everybody has to do business with like black people now. And it was like, I had just started to exist or something last year. And now, you know, it's kind of dying back off again. And so you can, you just can feel like the fickleness Mm -hmm. of especially folks that have the power in this city.
0: Yeah. That's a common thing with a lot of people that I've had on the show within the past year is like, like you mentioned that performative allyship is real strong and then it's sort of just died off in some ways it's died off gradually and in some it's been like a pretty abrupt shift away from it Mm -hmm. one thing that I thought was interesting and I talked about this in my interview with Joseph Coulier who runs the black school we were talking about how you know I think it was last year and maybe probably a year or so before that everything was like black lives matter black lives matter and how now it's just shortened to like BLM
1: yeah (laughs) <laughs> and like I, what the- Yeah, I mean, I, and I feel like that is like an absolute mirror of like society, you know, mm-hmm. like people, it's like, you know, when people are talking about black people, but they say POC. And yeah. it's like, no, let, like, let's actually be specific about what we mean here. And I think it just allows white denial to continue to exist. If we don't have to actually say black, and we don't have to say lives, you know, then we don't have to reconcile with the fact that like black people are dying. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, even like the almost meteoric kind of rise of BIPOC as an acronym. I swear that came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it was PLC for a long time. And then last year, everything was like BIPOC, BIPOC, BIPOC. Like, where did this come from?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it did. It did pop out. But like, I'm one of those people who actually really appreciate it because Black people, our experience is so much different from other POC, and there's so much anti-blackness in other POC communities. Mm, and true. so, I appreciate that we get to kind of differentiate those experiences. And Indigenous folks, like who have you know been here from the start and have really been harmed by white supremacy. So, I, I really appreciate the differentiation for sure. Now, let's talk about
0: teaching. You mentioned uh, being an assistant professor of graphic design at the University of Minnesota and you're the director of design justice there. Talk to me more about those roles, particularly about the director of design justice cuz I feel like that's the first time I've heard about that at a college.
1: Sure. So, you know, I'm I'm a assistant professor, tenure track, you know, kind of same run of the mill position, but I was hired on in this sort of partial position. So, kind of like, I want to say a half and half type of thing. So I'm a professor in one in some areas. And then I am the director of design justice. And what I was originally hired for was to be the director of the diversity network. That's what it was called. And when they were like negotiating with me, I was like, you know, when I actually get in this position, like, can I change some of these names? Because I absolutely hate the word diversity. I think it is a like, I don't know, coddling term to like help folks not talk about the fact that white supremacy allows there to be no black people in your whole college. Like, I think that that's wild. So I hate that word. And so I was like, can I, you know, come in and and like change that up? And so in doing my research, looking for, okay, I really like this word justice and looking for other terms and other ways folks talk about justice, especially in the realm of design, I was like, oh, this totally makes sense, design justice. So in this role, I kind of work on issues particularly related to how can we make our campus climate more equitable, more inclusive, those types of language, those types of words. And so some things that I'm working on right now that are great, but also very stressful and exhausting is the first thing being the cluster hire. We are working, I'm I'm leading this initiative with our head of HR to hire on four faculty members that are focused on design justice with a preferred qualification in anti-racism. And this will be in four areas, architecture, product design, interior design, and graphic design. And I'm hoping that they come on and work with me to like be able to basically take the small, the bit of power that's been given to me and disperse that amongst their specific areas and really just kind of increase the, what I call the design justice collective. And so what that is, it's like, it's not a committee per se, because committees like are more like you have to have someone who represents Fashion merchandising who sits on this committee. That's not what the, the collective is about. The collective is who's doing the work and then how can we show up together in space and support one another in that work. I'm not looking to have spaces where it's like, oh, racism 101, like let's talk about how you perpetuate racism. No, that's not what the collective is about. It's about who's already doing the work and how can we can s- support one another. So that's one of the things that I'm working on right now as the director of design justice. Some of the other initiatives that I do is hold affinity spaces for. Students of color. I also hold spaces for queer students, and I'm going to have some other colleagues work on affinity spaces for allied students, and some other things that we're working on. is a fellowship program. I'm really trying to address the fact that there are not any Black people, especially from our community, that have infiltrated the design industry like they should. White supremacy and all. So the fellowship program is supposed to be like an intensive 12 to 15 week course in the summer that students of color can apply to, and these students don't necessarily have to be students of our, you know, university. They can be between the ages of 17 and 23, and we're working with, you know, community organizations as well to recruit some of those students, but it'll be a cohort of 20s. what I'm hoping that we can pay and stipend them to be able to go through this program and then be offered some options at the end of this program. So things like an internship, a full-on job opportunity, Two-year program or a four-year program at a at a college or university, and we're working right now with the organizations that are here in Minneapolis. So people like Target, Best Buy, 3M, U.S. Bank. So some really big names of corporations who would have positions available, and then also we're working with other organizations so that we can provide mentorship as well. What the issue is with the fellowship program for me is that as I'm looking at these other organizations they don't have any people of color that work (laughs) as designers. And so how am I supposed to recommend that they help mentor these students of color that are coming in? It just doesn't sit right with me. They have to have people that look like them. And so right now we're working with other small, you know, graphic design firms and studios to see what we can do to kind of partner for that mentorship aspect of things. So that's another big part that we're working on to help increase BIPOC representation and the design industry. And so those are some of the things that those are some of the big things we work on. Another thing that as the director of design justice that I'm working on is creating a course where we get distinguished design lecturers to come in and teach a class on design justice. And so I'm personally hoping that once the course gets approved, that it is something that is required of all design students, so that they have to take this course in order to get their degrees. So
0: mm. I'm curious, and I'm sure people in our audience want to know as well, like, What does it look like to teach a designer about design justice? Like, what does that look like?
1: I can tell you what it starts off like. How about that? It'll start off by trying to do as much introspective work as we can. And what this does is it informs the student how their identity and their positionality, especially in the context of racism and other systems of oppression, will affect their design outputs. It will affect how they show up in the design world. It will affect what they're even interested in. It will affect their relationships with their colleagues. And so, you know, we we always talk about like empathy being like this first step of the design research process. And it's like, if we wait until everyone has empathy with Black people, we will never solve racism, right? And so how do we talk about this? Well, let's talk about you first, and let's talk about the decisions that you can make to help further a system where there is no, there isn't, or less, there is less oppression. So I think for me, I'm always going to start off with doing some social identity exercises, where students get to think about how it is that they realize or how it is that they develop biases, and then we'll go from there. We ha- I have a lot of these like kind of onboarding activities is what I like to call them. And yeah, they're able to really dive into, and in like, like I said, in an introspective way, their own positionality, and then look at who taught me that, what institutions were developing that character or that social construct, you know, so that I understood people to be a certain way. And so it really is like revolutionary for the students, because they're sitting here like, you know, I didn't even understand that I even thought this way, you know, until doing some of these exercises. So if I can teach them that they impact in whatever place they're at in the industry, even when you first graduate, and you get that really crappy entry level job that you still have power to change the climate within your institution, or you get the power to actually make some recommendations on some of the outputs that maybe your company is going to be putting forth. I think that that's super important. I've kind of done my job. So, yeah.
0: And now, has this been done at the college before, or are you just kind of spearheading this right now?
1: Definitely spearheading. So, one of the things that I do as this director is pedagogy audits. And what I'll have a faculty do is meet with me and we'll go over what does your syllabus look like? What do your projects look like? And how can we make those projects begin to talk about the ways, you know, systems show up for different groups of people. And so when we're able to like break that down, I think it will, you know, add to a more inclusive environment, of course, in our classrooms, but has it been done before? I think the resources are there. Are faculty necessarily motivated enough to do this? Are they being reprimanded if they don't? Absolutely not. And so the education that like the institution of education itself is one that I'm often questioning, like, can I even be here for definitely not the, like for the rest of my life? Like, what does this look like for me in the future? I'm not sure because I definitely know this is not where the revolution happens. Yeah. It's not where radical change can happen. And so has it been done before? Like I said, the resources are out there. I think that that faculty are too lazy to look it up, to be honest.
0: Mm. Wow. Okay. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> I had Dr. Christina Harrington on the show a couple of weeks ago. And I remember I was asking her about like, like what does it mean for you to be a black woman at this level, like doing design research and being a design PhD. I've also had Dori Tunstall on the show, but that was, oh my God, that was years ago. I need to try to have her back on the show. But it is interesting. Like you say, like the revolution is not going to be like done here at this school, but at least you're able to kind of do the work that you can here to show that it can be done, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, man, being a that, black woman. That was a woman, deep side. <laughs> I, was, I was literally thinking like, how many times do do institutions, not even just higher ed, but institutions in general, bring in black women to clean up after they have completely, can I cuss on this show? Yeah. Completely fucked over a whole a whole system. And it's just, I was having this talk last week because it's like you all have used the system of white supremacy to allow only white people to be in power. And then when you look around and you see that there are only white people in power, it's like, we need to bring black people in here to help us clean it up. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that extra, that cultural taxation is, it's like more than exhausting. And then on top of that, it's not like you're compensated for that. It's not like they say, you know what? We want more black people to come and teach at our college in Ann Arbor, Michigan, And it's not like they're going to say, you know what, we're going to pay for you to go on two trips to like a black city or go visit your black family because we know there's no black people here in this city. So because of systemic oppression, y'all have basically redlined us out of certain parts of the country. And then you want us to just import ourselves and like somehow feel okay in that city. Like it's irritating. And it's and it's so I don't know, like It's, it's so short-sighted. I mean, I can't even think of the word, but I think it's just, I think it's very shallow for them to think we're going to offer you the same exact package as this other white faculty, but expect more from us. I think it's insane.
0: Yeah, it's, wow. You said a lot. You said a (laughs) lot there. I mean, I've certainly talked to educators before where they've, you know, kind of told me about how they have to do so much with such little resources because one, yes, they have to teach you know, the specific courses that they were hired to do. But then there's so much more that it feels like the university expects out of them. As you say, on this kind of like diversity level with outreach and research and, and all these other things. And it's like, if you're not compensating someone to do all of that, it's just so much more undue labor, especially on top of just what it means to be black in academia in mm-hmm. general. You know, aside from all of this, like, yeah, that can be, wow, Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be really taxing, I'm sure.
1: Absolutely. And like when you just said black in academia, I'm thinking like, you know, as I'm sitting here doing the work, like in community, like when Dante Wright was shot and killed by police officer Amy Porter, I was like, I had this brilliant idea of trying to clothe all the protesters, me being one of them, but it was cold. Sometimes it was snowing, sometimes it was raining, it was freezing. We were getting like supplies out to protesters, but I was like, let's unify our message. And so you might see, This design that I created called stop, it says stop killing black people. And Mm -hmm. it's like in this typography that I created And so I I was making a whole bunch of messaging to help unify our message. So that was one of them, stop killing black people, people over property, abolish the police, you know, of course, black lives matter, you know, so I was creating all of these kind of like uh, slogans for the movement, for the protests that were happening. So that's some awesome and amazing community work. I got to work with a lot of organizers, a lot of friends who were coming out, helping me pass out stuff. We passed out, you know, so many things to protesters and we raised like 30,000 to be able to print all of these things for folks. But then as a black academic, I can't just insert that into my portfolio and be like, look at all this amazing work that I did. I now have to like kind of code switch my work. And be like, all right, now I have to write about it in an academic way and talk about the impoverished like neighborhoods of Brooklyn Center and how, you know, violence. I mean, like, it's just it's so it's gross. And it's like you not only want me to do the work, you recognize that I'm a community engaged scholar, but you still want me to form my work into this small little, little Funnel and put it into you know something that, that makes sense for y'all that you've been doing for years that is totally and completely based off white supremacy. So you don't want this new work. You want it just repackaged. You want me to continue doing the stuff that I'm doing, but also repackage it for your sake. I mean that's the kind of the exhaustion that I'm talking about. It's you know it's basically doing double the work. You not only want me because like other organ um other academics they just theorize about this stuff. They don't actually go out in the street and do it. Yeah. I'm actually in the street doing it, and then I have to go and write about me being in the street and doing it. Like,
0: what? Wow. Yeah, that's the main thing I can think of as you're talking about this is that I know this is not the only thing that you're doing. Like, on top of this, you're also a creative director at Blackbird Revolt. You mentioned you're pursuing your PhD in social justice education. Like, I feel like this is kind of a a weird question to ask, but like, how do you manage all of this?
1: So managing all of it, Honestly, I was like, the reason I started getting my PhD is one, to turn the system kind of like on its head and use the system for my benefit. Because this whole time, you know, my whole lifetime, the system has been, you know, working me to death. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to be in these rooms with all of these white people who are always questioning my expertise. I don't have a PhD, which is like in academia is like, I don't know, the golden ticket to do whatever the hell you want. And you know, and I don't get respect from any of these people. They're always questioning everything I have to say and do whether I'm on the, on the boots on the ground or, or not. So I was like, I'm going to get my PhD and the work that I'm already doing is going to count for that PhD. And so that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm having stuff overlap. There's a ton of overlap in all of my work, the stuff that I'm doing in my design studio, I can apply for awards for it and make that work in my tenure dossier. And so like, I am doing a lot, like I'm not trying to minimize what I do at all because it is a lot. However, there is so much overlap in the work that I do that it's not It's not like I have to completely get out of my mindset in order to do the next thing. So one of the things that I work on with a colleague of mine, Lisa Mercer, is called Racism Untaught. Racism Untaught is this framework for educators to be able to use the design research process to create anti-racist design approaches. It also is to help students be able to walk through that process as well. Now we're working with a lot of big organizations and corporations, like some of the ones that I had mentioned earlier. And so that project right there helped me to set off me applying for my PhD. Okay, I want to now apply for my PhD and talk about how we integrate, like really integrate Black liberation into like the foundations of graphic design. How can you start to bring in a student into this design area and begin to open up their mind to systemic oppression in a way that is so directed at their field? Like how do we talk about the inaccessibility of design in in a way that talks about why there's no Black people here? Why there are people of lower class who are left out because they can't afford the technology to be here. So how do we how do we do that? And so that's what I'm doing in my PhD, and it's it's also what I'm trying to tackle. You know, when I'm doing things like the fellowship program, I'm trying to integrate and bring more um, more people of color, more racially diverse people into the institution and to the uh, industry. So I'm kind of tackling both of those things at the same time. So while I said it is still a lot of work, it's there's a lot of overlap there. So I'm I'm super excited. About all the stuff that I'm doing.
0: So it all all works together in that way. That's good. Yeah. Woo. Wow. (laughs) What does a regular day look like for you?
1: A regular day. So so my calendar is like always up to date. Like people always like, you know, oh, can I schedule a meeting with you? I'm like, yeah, my calendar up to date. Like look at my calendar. And I schedule out time to work on certain things. So industry wise, if I have a client, I know some things do, I'm going to block off time for that to get that that thing done but what has been super important to me especially since the pandemic the pandemic has really slowed me down and i know it's like you're like how are you slow down with all this stuff that you're doing <laughs> but i used to really not have any free time like zero whatsoever like i probably couldn't even schedule this podcast interview with you because i would be like oh no sorry i have an NAACP meeting oh no sorry i have an aij meeting oh no you know mm-hmm. and so my calendar looks like okay nine, sometimes maybe eight to six o'clock, that is my work time, you know? And then in between that, I might even take a nap if I'm feeling kind of fancy. But, (laughs) you know, between nine and six, like that's my work time. And then after that, like, it's only if I'm like, I'm like crucial, I like was procrastinating on some deadline, which really isn't often. That's not really how I work. But, you know, after that, like, okay, we're about to do something. I'm about to go to the dog park with my dog. I'm about to go roller skating. I'm about to really try and celebrate black joy. And when the pandemic started, and and of course, it's like all this George Floyd stuff happened. And, you know, we were really trying to organize for black liberation. One of the things that I realized is that if I really want to organize for black liberation, if I I really want to, you know, try and embolden and empower my community, I need to stop trying to teach white people. And when I shifted my mindset from providing tools for white people to understand racism to let me provide tools for mutual aid funds or for us to think about what does racial trauma and healing look like? What happens if we bring in a therapist to talk to our community and we go through exercises and we go through meditation together? When I started changing my organizing skills and and my focus to that, it became so much Like so much more fulfilling. And I feel like I was so exhausted before. And it was because I feel like I was always beating myself over the head. Like, am I not explaining it right? Like, why are these people not getting it? And once I realized it's not my duty to make them get it, my duty is to my community and to build us up. And so what does that entail? And so that's when I shifted my view and it became so much more easy for me to do all these things that I do. And so now when I'm looking at my schedule, when I'm saying yes or no to things and I'm planning things out for the day, sometimes I have to think like, is this going to, is this going to help my liberation? you know, is it going to help my community's liberation? And if it's not, why is it do I want why do I want to do it? And so really being able to like ask those questions about certain things. And I mean, and it goes off pretty quick in your head. But I'd say like, I wasn't thinking about that before. And now that I intentionally am, like, it makes my day so much easier. So yes, some days I'm working on my business, some days I'm working on, you know, doing stuff for the you, I'm doing stuff for the you mostly every day, except the weekends. But it's all very fulfilling because I've, I've decided, you know, it, this this thing that I decided to do aligns with my passion. It, it aligns with Black liberation for me.
0: Nice. So you've kind of found a way to, to make it work within, I guess, kind of the confines of what the pandemic has done around like travel and things like that, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I feel you on that sort of always like working and being tired. <clears throat> the pandemic in a way did slow me down as well, mainly because I was traveling a lot for work, but- Also just because of how it's affected so many other things, like events and you know, just stuff like that. So it has it has for me in a way slowed things down, and then in some ways, I don't know, especially this year, there's been this rush to kind of get back to normal with so many things, and I feel like I'm not there yet. And I don't know if I want to go back there.
1: No, absolutely not. Like I am totally with you. People are like scheduling count like meetings or whatever, and like Sometimes they're like, okay, do you want to meet on campus? No, I don't. Like, <laughs> I do want to be on campus. The only reason I'm on campus is to teach the class and then I leave. I'm yeah. actually kind of upset that I paid for a parking permit because I don't even be there that much. Like, I, <laughs> know, I love. I nested. I got my little condo set up. I'm trying to be in my cute little ass condo and not be around all these white people aggravating the hell out of me. Like... I love being safe here in this little environment. And when I decide to go out, it's with all my black people and I'm feeling good and it's supporting my black joy and my liberation. So um, I am with you. I do not want things to go back to normal. And I feel like people are rushing for that. And I don't, I, don't, I really don't know why.
0: <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> I completely understand where you're coming from, 100%. So I want to go more into your background. I mean, certainly, I mean, we spent a lot of time now in the present going over what you're you're doing now, but I want to know where this, this spark came from. So can you tell me like where you grew up?
1: Sure. So this is like a complicated answer, <laughs> <But I> mean, <laughs> mainly Texas, but I'm an, I'm an army brat. So I was born in Panama, Central America, and we moved around a lot. I lived in Washington state. I lived in Germany for a few years, but then moved back to the States, lived in Pennsylvania for a minute. And Texas was definitely the longest place that I have lived, middle school and high school. And then after that, moved up to... So I was in Central Texas by forehead. And then after that, moved up to the Dallas area to go to college. Mm. Did you have
0: a lot of exposure to design growing up?
1: No, I did not. Now, I had a lot of exposure to fashion. Did I understand that it was design? No. I was really, I think like a lot of black kids and I feel like people are just kind of getting out of their shell and talking about how they were really into anime. I was super into anime in middle school and high school. And I thought the extent of my creativity was going to go to like drawing anime. Like I thought that was pretty much it. And so that was probably my first experience with like, oh, like I can actually like do some art. You know, I was into music as well. So I was I've always been like a pretty creative person. But thinking about design as a career, like my family was not about to support that. Like of course my family, of course, supports it now because they're like, oh, she's making a check now?" But, <laughs> you know, when I was going into school, like I remember, I remember I was majoring in fashion design and minoring in African American studies, and my mom would introduce me to like some of her colleagues or something and say, She's binary in African American studies. Like she wouldn't even say my major. And I was like, what, you know, and she was just like, I was just so worried. I talked about it to her, like, you know, this year. And she was like, I was just so worried, you know, that you weren't going to make any money. So, (laughs) (laughs) and so, no, I really did not have, I definitely didn't know what graphic design was like, are you kidding me? I did not even in my mind think about like, you know, oh, the signs on the road, like someone had to design those, like this Mm -hmm. pamphlet that I'm looking at, someone had to design that. and. I definitely was not introduced to that at all. And it might've been, I mean, there's a whole host of reasons, but like, I think that not having my family really support like art type careers really was like the foundation for me, not really even investigating the world of design.
0: Oh. When did that moment sort of come to you that this was something you wanted to like pursue?
1: I originally started in fashion design. I got my BFA in that. And I would say what happened was, is I went to college first to pursue my career as a musician, a clarinetist. And when I got there, these students were walking around with like their reeds in their mouth and they always had their instrument. And I was like, I do not love the clarinet like that. Like <laughs> it's not my jam. And so then I was like, what do I like to do? I like, I love to draw. I was really into like drawing the outfits of anime characters. So I was like, man, I want to do fashion design. And I always love like dressing up and stuff. So I was like, this is great for me. So I majored in fashion design, got out in 2008, which was the most horrible time to get out of college because I could not get a job. So I lived in Dallas. I was like, I always wanted to work at JCPenney because they had this huge corporate office there in the Dallas area and could not, they like just laid off 400 people right when I graduated. It was like, I was like, okay, well, I'm not getting a job there. So I worked as a salesperson at Zales for a year before I could get a position making 28,000 as a designer at a very small firm that did like wholesale clothing so we did a lot of sportswear and we they hold licenses and whatnot and mm-hmm. it was a pretty horrible experience i'll say like i left there after working there almost seven years i left there still making thirty two thousand. oh wow yeah so pretty horrible as i was working there though probably five years into it maybe four 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 or five years into it i was like you know what i could really teach an illustrator class because not only was i doing fashion design at the place I was working at, but I also started doing their web design and I started doing their POPs, which is their point of purchase for all of their retailers. I started doing their catalogs. So all this stuff I was learning on the job and realizing like, Hey, like I could do this. Right. So I was like, what do I need to do to, to be able to teach this at like college? Cause I don't want to deal with nobody's snotty nose kids. Sorry. <laughs> so I, was like, I want <laughs> really what it was is that I want to have the banter. And I didn't even understand how all of my degrees would begin to align, but they just did. I was like, I want to have the banter. I want to have like deep conversations about like life. And I really still didn't understand what that meant by the, at that time, I still wasn't like an organizer. Like I am now, like I wasn't, I was in community, but it was through like religious ways. And so not really in the equitable way that I would say now. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school. Got my MFA because I realized that this is what I need to get my degree. Um, As I was getting my degree, I started to realize what my degree was. It was a degree in design research. And to be honest, I started it and did not know a thing about it. And design research is still pretty new. So I started that degree, figured out what it was, started doing research on Black women, Black hair, started Project Natural, and graduated and was looking for jobs across the country. And that's why I ended up in Minnesota. Talk to me about Project Natural. Okay, so Project Natural was really like a self-introspective project. I did it during one semester. I can't remember what the class was called, but I think we were learning about like design research methods. And I was like, okay, I'm going to use natural hair and and interview the black women in my family, interview some of my black friends, and talk about natural hair from an ethnographic, you know, stance. So like I did video interviews and things like that, and it really became this really cool project that it was like, okay, as you're looking for like thesis topics, you're and even dissertation topics, you're trying to fill a hole, fill a gap in academia that, that isn't filled yet with that information. And so how many studies had there been at the time that I did my thesis project on natural hair? Zero in, in design, for sure, but very, very few in like even the social sciences. So I continued on with this project as my thesis project, which I didn't even think, you know, that my professors who were white men thought was serious enough to continue. But fortunately, as woke as they could be and was like, you know, you need to do this. Like they were very encouraging of me to like really dive into this. And so I continued on with the project and it turned out to be like this huge exhibition. It turned out to me to be me making and creating space for black women to come together, to learn from each other, to be educated about their natural hair, about natural hair processes, how we can make our own products, you know, how we can style our hair, because it was something that was practices that were stolen from us in slavery. And so being able to kind of reunite, you know, the practices with the people is a really, you know, really awesome. And what I hope to do with this project as it continues, I got to kind of pause again, because of the pandemic, but I want to take a trip to West Africa and visit some countries, really study natural hair practices, and then come back and be able to disseminate that in a really beautiful, educational, but fulfilling, communicative, community-building way. So that's what I hope to do and to continue with the project and really hold some larger symposiums to have folks learn how to do hair tutorials and learn from you know, the workbooks that I'll create and build community with one another. And
0: now will you try to weave this into some of your educational work? Or do you want to keep this as like a separate project from all that?
1: I would say that this is part of my educational work. Like I was saying, like all that overlap. So when I'm doing the symposiums, the natural hair symposiums, I'll do a new release of of illustrations of natural hair. And I mean, if you're interested in looking at what those look like, you can go to projectnatural.com. But I'll do a new release. So right now I have 30 pieces that I've illustrated. And not only do they have these beautiful illustrations, but oftentimes they have quotes on them from the Black women that I've interviewed. So really trying to build across empathy and and have folks know that they're not alone in their journey of natural hair. And then I also have educational materials. So I'm essentially teaching classes while I have these symposiums. I'm also Mm. bringing in other instructors. So Often, you know, so so it is part of my educational work and a part of my um, my dossier for tenure because of the community engaged scholarship portion of that project.
0: Wow! And now, along with that, you uh, I think you recently had a solo exhibition called Umbra, which I think really to call it an exhibition is kind of a a bit of a misnomer because it was more like a almost like an event of sorts because you had sort of talks and there were sort of some interactive portions. Can you can you talk a little bit
1: more about that? Yes. So I love that you're talking about it like that because it's like, it was like an experience. And that's what I, I hope to create. So Umbra was really birthed out of living in Duluth, Minnesota, which is 1.9% Black. Living there for the three and a half to four years that I had been there before I moved, it was isolating to say the least And it's interesting because the state of Minnesota is this like blue state. It's very liberal, but it's not liberal because of Mm anti-racism, you know? And so in this exhibition, I was like, well, I'm going to talk about that. If, if as a designer, I have to be super intentional with what I say as an artist, you know, I'm about to fuck some shit up. Like that's what, (laughs) that's literally what I was thinking (laughs) in my mind. So I have these themes, you know, as I started to build out the pieces The pieces were really just me expressing my frustration. And as I started to build out the pieces, I started to begin to find similar themes within the exhibition. So I have six themes overall. The first theme that I had designed for actually was the danger-anger theme. And it wasn't the middle fingers, if folks are interested. It was actually the pregnant woman. And what she's holding in her belly is grenade. And the grenade's pin is being pulled by this white hand And what that speaks to is the trauma that black women have to birth. We also have to hold while in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And then also that we are, you know, we're four times more likely to die during giving birth because white doctors don't believe that we're in pain. And so really being able to talk about systemic issues that are intersectional was the point of this exhibition. It was to talk about black women and, I think I did that pretty well. And what I was excited about is that not only do I have these beautiful pieces that, you know, have been shown in a variety of places, but I also created experiential pieces that went with each theme. So on the one, you know, this, this theme that I'm talking about, danger anger, it was a piece where you could pick up headphones and basically hear me yelling out the description of, <laughs> of one of these pieces. <laughs> <clears throat> while like the liberation theme i had like legos that matched the color of that screen print and you know people were supposed to build what they thought liberation would look like for black women and mm-hmm. so you know i saw i had a lot of really cool interactional pieces as well and then i also had a zine this zine was like, you could flip it. So if you were a black woman, you looked at one side and you got to grab a permanent marker and add to the zine. While if you were anyone else, like every single person who was not a black woman flipped to the other side. And all you were supposed to do is read, you were supposed to take in the information. And so because black women were experiencing, I wanted them to be able to express that thing. And a lot of them, it was like a very emotional night, like a lot of black women were like, crying, laughing, like, you know, there were so many emotions happening. And that's what I wanted. I wanted black women to feel validated. And i wanted everyone else who wasn't a black woman to understand how they can either add to our harm or add to our healing and so that's what that exhibition was it was birthed out of frustration but i'm hoping that it kind of again i i don't think i can get away from being an educator because that's what it was doing it was validating these black women but also educating everyone else as to how they're affecting our experiences do you plan
0: on trying to bring the exhibition to other cities
1: couple of pieces from the show actually been shown in other places and other like museums and galleries and whatnot. I would be happy to bring this anywhere. I actually have on my website how you can bring it there to your gallery. So that's umbraexhibit.com. But absolutely, I would love for it to be a traveling show that spoke to other communities of Black women in the way that it spoke to me and that I was able to release in that way. So I'm hoping it's kind of a release for other Black women.
0: So you have put on your own solo exhibition you created project natural you're teaching you have the studio you're pursuing your phd and i don't know if this these other two things i'm about to mention happened kind of with all of that as well or if i'm kind of trying to track the chronology of it but you volunteered for a few years with aiga minnesota and at the same time you were the second vice president of the loose local naacp chapter like did you find that those experiences kind of helped out with any of the other work that you were doing? Like, did they inform any sort of things from like a social level?
1: I would say volunteering. Okay. Did they both, I, w- I mean, I only want to talk about like their cons right now. And I don't know if that's just the trauma that has happened in these organizing spaces. Oh no. <laughs> but I would say AIGA definitely has its its issues for sure. I would say being brought in as the director of diversity inclusion for the AIGA Minnesota branch, it was exhausting In the same way that all the other things that I talked about have been exhausting, like the challenge of racism is now on this on this black woman who basically feels not only racism, but sexism, you know, and because I'm queer, also homophobia. And so, like, I'm not really sure how much of an impact you can have on an institution that is. That was founded when segregation was still a thing, when women still couldn't vote. It's funny how, like, these old organizations will brag about that. Like, they'll be like, oh, we've been around since blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay, you've been around since Jim Crow. Like, you know, like, (laughs) like, like, you know, so... Things like that, you know, still permeate throughout the organization and they sit around, they look up and they're just like, well, where are all the black designers? They must not, they must not be interested in design, you know? And so then like, I'm sitting there trying to convince these white people that sit on this, that sit in this organization that we are interested in design. We just don't want to be in spaces with you if we don't have to be. Mm. And so it's difficult. It's very difficult. And I think there's only so much you can do so much of the needle that you can then move. And so at, at some point, you got to say what I've been saying, which is like, when is this supposed to, when is this helping my my Black joy, my Black liberation? And yeah. if it's not, we got to cut it off. Like their life is really, it, it really is too short for us to be sitting here exhausting ourselves, trying to teach white people why racism is wrong. And so with the NAACP, there is definitely some movement that happened. I will say the legalism of the NAACP is what will stop progress from the NAACP. I think that, the NACP is hesitant to change, especially like progressive inclusive change, like they're for black people, but not all black people. I mean, you, know, you can't really talk about queerness in those spaces. You can't really talk about sexism in those spaces. Can't even really talk about being an atheist or not being a Christian in those spaces. And so while there is some good that some of these organizations have done, I would say if I have my choice, which I do to be in those organizations or not, do I want to continue to be hated on for just existing? Absolutely not. And so I don't think I'm going to be a part of, of some of those spaces anymore if I don't have to. So while I did amazing work because my ancestors and because, you know, I got that black magic, I would say that like, there's still some things that I think internally they need to work on. And I can't necessarily solve those. Like that's not, it's not something I had the power to adjust for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think when you're also volunteering for two organizations like that at the time, aside from just the actual time and energy it takes, it feels like you're going back and forth between AIGA, which seems to be more of a predominantly white space, and then NAACP being a predominantly black space, but then them each having their own issues that are kind of isolated from that, if that makes any sense.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, I'm looking at AIGA. AIGA is dealing with like racism as a whole, right? And anti-Blackness as a whole. And then I go into this NAACP space and it's like they are also dealing with anti-Blackness, like within our own internalized, you know, racism that's happening within that community. And so it's just showing up like because we have all been socialized under the same exact system, it shows up differently depending on what community we're in. But yeah, you're dealing with just a different side. You're just someone with a different side of the oppression and it's still oppression, you know, cut and dry.
0: I don't want to get on here and bash AIGA. I mean, I'll bash my local chapter because they've, (laughs) you mentioned that about the diversity thing. I remember this was years and years ago. I had, I think they wanted me to do something with the chapter around diversity, but they didn't want to give me a director level. They wanted it to be like a chair level or co-chair or something like that. And I was telling them that like, you know, diversity affects the chapter at all levels like it affects membership it affects our student groups and things like that secondly I kind of told him this flat out like we live in Atlanta and I'm not about to be your negro whisperer because you don't want to talk to black students and black design professionals like I'm not going to be that person Mm -hmm. you've been around in the city long enough you know and, and folks that are affiliated with the chapter here know that like it caters to SCAD students art institute of atlanta students maybe mm. if you're an art major at like georgia tech or georgia state or something like that don't go to one of these hbcus aig atlanta ain't got nothing for you sorry they ain't yeah. got nothing for you and i was like look just because you don't want to talk to the black people that live past highway 20 that ain't I, that's not gonna be me i'm not gonna be the translator
1: yeah yeah and i,
0: and I mean eventually they have gotten Someone in to do it, a black woman, like you mentioned, about black women kind of coming in to to clean up these messes. And I don't know her, so I'm not going to speak ill of her. They've historically had black women in that position to kind of help out with diversity with the chapter. I wish them well.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. That's all I can do.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know who this individual is. I'll just speak from the perspective that I was a black woman who was brought in to like help clean up this mess, this diversity inclusion. And it's not something that is our responsibility to clean up. And I also, what bothered me when you were talking about the groups that AIGA caters to, it's like we as black people had to navigate white spaces since we were children. And I cannot, and it just, it irks the crap out of me when white people say that they don't know any black people or that like, how can we network with some of these people organizations? And I'm just like the privilege, like the, the entitlement to have people come and work for your organization, but you don't know a single black person in your network is that should make you feel gross. That should make you disappointed in yourself that you don't have any other Substantial relationships with people of color in your city. Like I just find that to be disgusting. And you are have like you are like the top of privilege to be able to do that because, let me tell you, like I know a ton of white people because I have to know a ton of white people, mm-hmm. and it's like y'all can't even bother yourselves with like n- being en- able to name five black people that are not Maurice Cherry and who are not Antoinette Carroll. Like who else <laughs> you knows that's a black? Does that, you know what I'm saying? Like it's yeah. like. It's so lazy. And that just it just irks the crowd me because we are the ones with the stereotype of laziness, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Woo, don't get me to
0: talking up in here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have this very unique
0: and I think, you know, of course, very informed perspective around the design community and everything. And I just want to know to you, like, what does it mean to be a designer today?
1: You know, I think because my perspective is really been shifted to to black liberation. Like I think that being a designer, we should be striving to use our talents and our creative abilities to provide opportunities and to right wrongs of that have been, you know, has shown to us historically. And I think understanding that as a designer in itself, that title has so much power. We are the ones to set out what experiences are for people walking through airports like that is a whole lot of power. And if we can make it so that people are starting to see black people in airports more somehow using some creative exhibition, like that's just a very tiny little thing. But I think that we, as a designer, like we have to be able to recognize problems, be able to talk about those problems without being all nervous and uh, uncomfortable because you're white and you don't want to talk about race understand that problem and then be able to say, okay, what am I doing to perpetuate that issue? What am I? What can I do to change the ways that I am to help bring healing to that issue or closure to that issue, whatever it is. So I think that as designers, it really is about, I don't want to say critical thinking, but it's really about thinking critically about the world around us to be able to recognize problems and be able to create approaches that's going to help Everyone, and I do mean everyone, who is sitting in the margins of the margins.
0: What is it that that keeps you motivated and inspired to continue this? I mean, I think certainly for anyone that's listened through this far, they can tell that you have a lot of passion behind it. Where does the the motivation and inspiration to keep going come from?
1: You know that quote about you know I am my wildest my ancestor's wildest dream. Mm-hmm. As I've been on my own healing journey this year if if that's the case, if, if I am what my ancestors were dreaming of, how can I make them proud? Like, how can I use this opportunity to build up our community in a way that's like going to most positively impact us? That's where I find the passion. My passion is what can I do that's going to be good for us? What can I do that's like, okay, I know I've made it in a sense, like, quote unquote, I'm not like some rich person or anything, but like, I'm an educator, a professor, and I make enough money, right, to have a disposable income. So, what can I do with the with, with my money? What can I do with my skills? What can I do to give back to community? Um, and if I can do that, not only just like being in the streets at a protest, but I can do that by being the angry black woman at a meeting at the at my institute of higher education. I'm gonna do that because. If my ancestors sought that I thought should, that I should be here in this space at this time it must be for a reason it must not be for me to sit back and have my mouth shut when stuff is going wrong and when people are being hurt and when people are being oppressed if I can do something about that and shut some white folks down and put more black people and more people of color in power I'm gonna do that and that's what that's what the passion the passion is my ancestors came this far if this is where I'm at how can I? Take that baton that they're passed to me, and keep running and pass it to the next person. Mm.
0: To that end, who are some of the the like mentors and colleagues that have really helped you get to this place in your career?
1: Well, it's funny that I mentioned Antoinette because I really appreciate her work. You know, especially when I was like looking into AIGA. I know she's not a part of it now, and you know, good. But when I was looking into you know these organizations and everything, she was really inspiring to me, and I've um, just been very glad to have her in my life. Mm-hmm. Emery Douglas is like the person that I'm always going to be like, oh, I like I was like when I first learned about Emery was like, I think I was in grad school because, you know, I wasn't into graphic design. I was into fashion earlier. And so in grad school, I learned about a lot of black designers. Emery was, of course, somebody who I really admired because I was like, that is a perfect example of taking a passion about community and a passion for organizing and activism and using design directly to relate to that. And so Emory Douglas is definitely somebody, you know, who I look up to, someone who I brought to campus, someone who I met, who I've had conversations with, who I keep in touch with. And that is just an awesome relationship to have. Absolutely. And then there are also other people like on my campus Who look out for me? Who are my that I consider mentors of mine that I check in with? Who are not just like helping me with my tenure dossier and saying, "Oh, girl, don't do this, do that." You know, like you know, there's a lot of people on that campus who are are doing some amazing things for me, and I really appreciate that. And then I probably the number one person in my life who I look up to would be my mom. (laughs) Like she Hmm. is an amazing individual. She is, you know, has gone through so much, and I and like now looking back at like all the stuff that was going on in childhood and, and, you know, you don't really notice all the things that are happening until you're like outside of it. And you're like, mom, what was this, you know, and realizing all that stuff. And so she just continues to inspire me every day that I think about some of the things that she had us, had us through and really was like protecting us. So I just thank her for that.
0: Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what kind of work do you want to be doing? Or do you see yourself doing at that point?
1: Man, I think this question, I have to think about it in a way, like it's like, am I thinking wildest dream or am I thinking practicality? Practicality, I would probably still be an educator. Maybe I might be thinking about education in a different frame. Like, is it in higher education? Is it maybe my own institution that I've created? Maybe it's something like that. I don't know. Maybe in my my dreams, I would be working for some organization or maybe I'd create some organization that centers black liberation in everything that it does and you know I am helping to transform and bring about black artists and designers giving them what they need to organize and create policy shifts and things like that for our community and I feel like there's organizations who might do some of those things and so maybe it's just like a and need to collaborate those organizations or bring them together in some way using design. I don't know. But I mean, I, that's what I see my focus being is really again, shifting from, cause I still think I'm still teaching white folks. Like I think that's still the thing that I'm doing, especially in higher ed, but like mm. in five years, can I really be focused on black liberation and black liberation only like that would be my dreams. Well, just to wrap things
0: up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and and all your projects and everything online.
1: Sure. So uh, folks can find more about me at my website, TeresaMoses.com. They can also find me on social media at my personal addresses, which is at Project Natural, or they can find my studio at Blackbird Revolt, which is doing some amazing things in community. And so that's where folks can find me. If you go to any one of those sites, you'll be able to link to anything and find me at all places.
0: And I'll make sure that we have links in the show notes, too, for Umbra, as well as for Project Natural. also. Awesome. Cool. Well, Teresa Moses, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, as I mentioned before we started recording, several folks who we've had on the show have been like, you got to get her on the show. You got to get her on the show. And I've heard (laughs) you speak at, at, you know, several events before. And I was like, I got to get her on the show. So I'm glad, you know, for that one to make sure that, you know, you're on the show to share your story. But I mean you are doing so much. I mean I think when when I think of who is a catalyst in the community that's really tr- like making things happen like talking the talk and walking the walk it's you. It's oh, you. So, I mean, that's so
1: nice. I'm so like, you know, my love language is words of affirmation. So you just hit all the right spots right now, my <laughs> oh, Thank you. No, but I validation. think. I mean, I think it's, and, and I, I hope
0: that our audience can engage with your work and find ways to support you, and really kind of help you move closer to this goal around making sure that designers are using their gifts for Black liberation, because like that's the goal. Like that's what you are putting all of your energy and time forward to to make sure that that happens so i hope that one day soon that that happens and that this interview is a is just a stepping stone to make that happen so thank you yeah. so much for uh, for coming on the show i appreciate it awesome
1: thank you so much for having me maurice it was a pleasure
0: big big thanks to teresa moses and of course thanks to you for listening You can find out more about Teresa and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And, of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So, what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Please don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, just search for Revision Path, or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.